talking about shaker design, which I sort of brushed off and then have come back to it as everything that is good about design <laughs> and restraint and proportion and the beauty of simplicity and functionality. John Ferry was the professor touting shaker design to a bunch of 18-year-olds. It's one of those times when you wish you appreciated it then and you only later realize what a gem those concepts really were. Bob's not an architect, but a designer of everyday objects. After graduating from Cranbrook Academy of Art, he started a business making pottery and doing woodworking, and more recently relocated to Denver, Colorado to manage a college wood shop. Bob's interview is an inside look at being the maker of objects. All right, friends, 10 Colleagues, 10 Years is a podcast series where I interview 10 of my colleagues from architecture school 10 years after graduating. We all went to Texas A&M University and received a degree from the College of Architecture, but ended up in drastically different places. This podcast is a celebration of what a non-traditional architecture degree offers for the skills that it teaches. It's 10 individual stories of navigating a career path that's meant to be inspirational. And when I personally started my own architecture practice earlier this year, I attribute some of my success to this kind of degree program. So I hope that you get the same sort of inspiration from these stories, and thanks for listening. I'm Heather Pogue, and this is 10 Colleagues, 10 Years. Hi. Um, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm in Denver, in Littleton, which is like South Denver, but I'm walking distance from the light rail to downtown, which is nice. Sweet. But right now I can walk to work, which is great. Walk my son to school. Yeah, it's Got a awesome. good setup. I wanted to interview you, and hopefully you didn't do too much prep, because it's just the story of your last 10 years, essentially. Oh, my God. So I wanted to focus, like, 25% of it on school and the time there and what you learned and what pivotal experiences you had, and then focus the rest of it, 75%, the bulk of it, on the last 10 years. And I don't even know all those things that you've done. I've kind of kept track of you, but I feel like there's a lot of gaps and holes that you could fill in for me and the audience? Well, and I, I followed you and Andrew a little bit. Gosh, I guess, yeah, it's been 10 years. From my perspective, it's like, poof, you own your own architecture. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Except two years in the making is really, I mean, uh, it looks I, like it was quick, but it took a long time. And working for lots of firms before I figured out what I wanted to do. But... I wanted to start off by telling a story about each person, how I remember you in school, or a specific memory I have. And my memory of you happened in Maffey's studio. One of the assignments was to design a kitchen, an ADA-compliant kitchen, and you made up your client, you made up their persona, character, and what they wanted, and then you designed to that. Everyone kind of picked something different. But yours was exceptional in the fact that you found a red painted refrigerator. It was a vintage refrigerator that you found somewhere online and you said, I'm going to buy that refrigerator and then I'm going to design the kitchen around that. And that was so radically different than everybody else's take, which was just, you know, the standard literal prompt, go pick out a person and then design from that. And you picked a refrigerator. And designed around that. And it was one of the coolest projects. I loved it. Interesting. And 
I do remember that project. <laughs> and I do remember being very specific about the friend. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. I hadn't remembered that the prompt itself was for a specific client. One of the projects in that class was supposed to be, they had to have some sort of eccentricity. And I picked pack rats, ended up using like sewer culverts, <laughs> like putting like tons and tons of storage in the unusable parts of the round tube. I'm so impressed that you remember that. My memory is kind of horrible. Oh well, God. I just remember thinking, wow, you have a really different perspective. You took the prompt and twisted it. Thank you. Yeah. I was doing creative stuff in high school. I mean, I was doing art and band, but I also did this destination imagination program that basically they give you a prompt and some of them are different problems like build a bridge or create an instrument or create a remote control car or whatever within it but you also have to build a skit around it you have to write the script sometimes write music sometimes do your scenery your sets your costumes all of it it's like a mix of theater technical challenges all sorts of stuff that uh I did a lot of, and that was at least laid some framework of formal creativity training. <laughs> well, and I think it gets you used to a creative prompt where it's somewhat subjective. I think a lot of school normally was objective learning, and the prompts in architecture school are so out there for a traditional school path that you do before that, that maybe you had some exposure to a more creative process perhaps a story that describes that which i did not come up with and i'm probably going to butcher it but sophie creer in grad school sophie creer is an artist and researcher who was originally trained as a textile designer she practices in rotterdam and teaches design courses at a university there sophie creer in grad school gave this lecture about a contest to design a bridge connecting two communities of course, everybody puts in their submittals, you know, some engineered, some just sort of conceptual. And one person sent in a piece of paper that said, sometimes it's better to not build a bridge as their submittal to the project, because uh, I guess, according to the story, they had actually done their research and decided that the bridge would be detrimental to the communities on either side of it, would actually create more problems than the bridge was going to solve. And I just thought that is sort of like the perfect story for thinking about how to, you know, you're going to have a client come to you with an issue that they want to be solved. And a lot of times what they want solved is based on other underlying issues. As a designer, as a problem solver, our job is to tease that out and see like, what are the real underlying issues? Do you need a building? Do you need this area to be enclosed? Do you need whatever it is you're asking for. Like, should we be tearing this building down to build a new one? Yeah. Should we be renovating it? I don't know. It's so. similar to a client I just had who wanted to remodel their house. And Seattle real estate is just insane. Like, I'm sure Denver is also. But I had contractors come talk to them. And one of the contractors' advice was, don't remodel this house, just buy a new one. Like, sell your current home and buy another one. It, that was fair because the cost for remodeling probably would have been the same, if not more than the up price and getting what they wanted out of another house. Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe the question might be, you want a modern house, but you bought this beautiful Queen Anne. Yeah. <laughs> Don't remodel it into a modern house. Keep the 
Queen Anne and go build your modern house somewhere else, you know? So my first question for you would be, what was your fairy word? Fairy word. What I mean by this is fairy's actually a person. He's John Fairy, and he was a studio fairy word. What I mean by this is fairy's actually a person. He's John Fairy, and he was the studio professor you had directly before or after Rodney Hill, typically. His assignments were notorious because the first day he made all the students select a word that described themselves, and then everything we designed in that studio had to express that particular word. First was a 2D drawing of a delicate ink. First was a 2D drawing of delicate small ink strokes. Then came the 3D cube of shapes. And then, lastly, a house. All had to ultimately express the word, and our colleagues became known for that word. So I thought it would be fun to revisit this topic 10 years later. My very word was bold, which was, I think, especially at that time in my life, appropriate. Looking back on the work that I did, you know, I think was completely wrong for <laughs> <laughs> everything I did. The work was okay, as it is, but it, I don't think any of it was particularly bold. Okay, so had you a chance to go back and redo it, you would have chosen different design strategy? Oh, I would have, yeah, I would have uh, approached the design projects completely differently. Okay. Would you still have picked bold? No, no. <laughs> Not like as far as like my current personality? Yeah. Um, no, I, I think I would have, oh gosh, I don't know what I would have picked. I'd probably pick attention deficit. <laughs> <laughs> Too many interests okay. all at once, which is kind of the opposite of bold. Why did you pick bold to begin with? Again, my memory is really bad. I want to say fairy <laughs> suggested it to me, which is funny because I might have been acting bold at the time, having bold questions as a uh, overconfident freshman. <laughs> because I think I was just very excited to be at school. And well, one of the questions I had, maybe we can go into it now because you've already talked about the destination imagination. Was that something that led you towards architecture school or what brought you there to begin with? This is at least the answer that I have given in the past to that question, <laughs> which is more or less the way I was thinking of it at the time, which probably been the best answer, is that uh, I was into art. Math and geometry were super easy for me. It made sense to become an architect. Funny enough, the concept of a designer of objects, I guess, was not maybe something that even my parents were thinking about, you know, and so it was suggested to me sort of early on that maybe architecture would be something I'd want to pursue. And indeed, it is part of the design field that I am interested in. So I think they were right in that sense. But the practice of architecture is much less hands-on. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Did you think that you would be an architect then when you got out of school? I never worked in an architecture office. You know, I knew architects designed buildings, but it's funny looking back how little I knew of like the day-to-day -day operation of an architect. I had never seen, say, my parents interact with an architect for a project or something. And having said that, there's, you know, a vast variety in the practice of architects. Mm -hmm. It's not all just one thing. Finding the exact ones I wanted to work for, I guess, at the scale I wanted to work was a 
I think it was actually a bit confusing towards the end of undergrad, trying to figure out uh, all the different types of firms I could possibly work for. So you had an idea for what kind of architecture you would have practiced, but just finding somebody that had done something similar was difficult and therefore led you maybe to something a little different, which we'll go into later. Exactly. Okay. And I worked for a, a very large architecture firm and worked on some very large projects where I just realized the depth of the minutiae possible within architecture, which of course as an intern, that's going to be what you're working on. You kind of have to slog through a little bit. I did not like not being able to really get a full grasp of the overall thing where those small minutiae become meaningful then mm -hmm. towards a larger project. And there's just various levels of commercial design where it's all sort of geared towards cost. And that's always going to be a factor, but you know, there's some lucky few architects that really get into the nitty gritty in a more fun way. I think I would have enjoyed it better. I resonate with what you said about having the smaller minutiae, you're able to do that and kind of slog through it. If you have a vision of the overall picture, there's some motivation and purpose there, but otherwise it's detached and harder to engage, which is a lot of what I found also working at traditional firms. How big were the firms that you were working at? I worked for quite a few and it ranged from 50 person firm to six, maybe was the smallest firm I worked for. I kind of saw the gamut and the project types. I've worked on every type of project. And so it was enough to kind of see the process finally and then realize, I think similar to you, but maybe it took me a little longer to say, there's not a model that fits what I want to do. So I'm going to go create that. <laughs> no, that's good to hear. What was the closest to what you were hoping to do? Actually, it was a firm in Denver to remain nameless. I think we've talked about it a little bit when you were thinking about moving there. But um, there's a design build firm I worked for that he was an artist that saw architecture as his medium of expression and was very tactile in his use of materiality and manipulated materials that created a, something different out of them. So having that more hands-on connection and actually getting to build what was being designed and also not seeing it as just traditional architecture, but for instance, the Denver Art Museum had him do an exhibit of a material study. And so he created an art installation. So I think for me, architecture is a medium, but there's other things out there to design. Just to be a designer in the true sense, not just to do buildings. That's interesting to hear. And something like that firm is more what I sort of dreamed of doing. However, I've also... If I dare say, as I matured as a designer, my tastes have dramatically changed. When I first went to school, I was much more into, you know, radical designs or architecture as art. And, you know, the more exciting things of architecture, aspects or field areas of architecture. However, going back to John Ferry's foundations class, I was so thankful that off the bat, he was talking about shaker design, which I sort of brushed off and then have come back to it as everything that is good about design <laughs> and restraint and proportion and the beauty of simplicity and functionality. You know, not necessarily minimalism, but the beauty in the everyday object, which 
bring me back to, you know, when I was younger, more immature designer than I am now. I was way more excited about the flashy architecture. Have definitely gained more of an appreciation for traditional architecture and the subtle beauty in some of more traditional, both on the craft design, craft side, and architecture. Maybe that was subconsciously pivotal experience you had in school where you were able to go back to Ferry talking about shaker architecture and yeah. you had a foundation for that you didn't even maybe realize or discover later. I think I just didn't appreciate it at the time. <laughs> Doing like shaker architecture was not what was exciting about what everybody else was throwing shit against the wall and seeing what sticks. Sort of the uh, more an American vernacular that had been developed over a time and uh, appreciating the wisdom of people who have come before you. You go into school and you want to be like, I have brilliant ideas that no one has ever seen. That's what I thought too, yeah. Right? <laughs> I had to come up with something completely original. Exactly. But everything's yeah. already been done. <laughs> to realize like there's a history to everything. Right. And you know, plopping a modernist building in the midst of like a historic downtown could just be potentially horrendous. It could be potentially brilliant if it's done with serious thought and care, but it might be the first thing that gets torn down in the next 15 years as well. <laughs> right. So were there any other pivotal experiences in school that kind of led you on a journey? Pretty soon after that internship, I started exploring design on more of a furniture and product scale, which, uh, thank you, Gerald Maffey, wherever you are. <laughs> Another cornerstone professor in the College of Architecture is Gerald Maffey. He also came to Texas A&M from Berkeley in the 60s after Rodney Hill, who was my episode one interview. He was someone whose students dreaded having as a studio professor because of how rigorous he was. And by dreading, I actually mean people relish the challenge. He was someone who gave you seven projects in one semester. And if you think about it, semesters aren't that long and you have to design something, iterate it on it dozens of times present it multiple times, and produce work that expresses the design in the final presentation, which typically was a model. This is an insane amount of work for students in one semester, and people loved the challenge. Gerald Maffey, wherever you are, <laughs> for letting me explore that in design, which is something I really loved about the program there. As an environmental design, they did touch on powers of 10, different scales and how they relate to each other. During, during that... Um, and I don't remember who taught it because it was a, it was a um, correspondence course. We had to do a survey of local historic architecture. And I did this whole survey of, it's called the Trujillo House in Houston, which is this old uh, Queen Anne slash stick style historic house in the Houston Heights. Did all the plans for it, studied it in detail, basically did a whole as built of it model. That class also introduced me to archetypal architectural forms in a way that I hadn't previously explored. That sort of also led me to be more interested in simple shaker style design, or even just that as a feel or an aesthetic. So then the last thing in undergrad that happened was when I was in Mappy's class, probably the same one we were I overheard him telling another student, I think it was Sam, 
about Cranbrook Academy of Arts. Oh, really? Was it Sam Brizendine or Sam Tannehill? Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah, I think it was Sam Brizendine. So he was telling Sam about how great his program was and Sam should consider going there, which I think made sense for him. He was doing a lot of material study, mm-hmm. which is something definitely that was going on there. But what I really overheard was that, you know, you can create your own curriculum and research whatever you were interested in researching. Mm-hmm. And so my, my ears perked up and I applied two weeks late learning Illustrator or InDesign in the process of putting together a portfolio to apply there. So magically somehow got in. And this was right before graduating from AM where you're putting that together? Yeah, this must have been the spring, I think, when the or even late spring when the applications opened. What made you want to pursue more school for art and design? I think particularly because I had sort of decided that I did not I wasn't immediately interested in pursuing architecture. Funny enough, <laughs> after school I made most of my freelance money drafting for architects. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Hey, it gives you the skills. Can use them. Um, so you went to school at Cranbrook right away. And can you briefly kind of summarize your time there and what you honed with your skills? I learned a whole lot at Cranbrook, including what we were talking about earlier, humbling myself as a designer. <laughs> Do you remember I, I was uh, in a band? Yes. I was actually going to tell a story about that, and I backed up and told my second memory of you. Because my first memory is you see, uh, covering Radiohead's <laughs> Karma <laughs> Police. And <laughs> it was like one of your first shows. It goes back to your fairy word. It was bold. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you were in a band during college. Right. Um, yeah, so I was in a band. Obviously still interested in design and thinking, okay, how can I somehow combine these things? Also, not thinking about what actual job is connected. <laughs> you know, it's it's telling that if there's not a program that offers a certain uh, track of study, there's probably not a job waiting for you. Again, unless you somehow make it or pursue it just as an art. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, I wanted to pursue somehow music-related design, possibly the design of amplifiers or guitars or guitar cases, you know, or anything that had album design Mm -hmm. I was very interested in, which I did do a bit of. Just thinking about design and how it relates to music, you know, physical design, because music design as far as like acoustics and all that is a whole nother field of study. So I fumbled around a bit in my first semester with different amplifiers. Uh, My first project was like this clear vacuum formed guitar case would have like inserts available to brand your band it was horrible it got so torn apart in crit for being too ironic which you know i think they were correct in every (laughs) every bit of that critique but you know learned lots about fabrication on it thinking about end user that among other things other later subsequent projects I uh, learned that some things are just better not designed or put out into the world. And thinking about that, which is definitely when sometimes it's better not to build a bridge, has sort of become my mantra when I'm thinking about what I want to design. So that was a big 
maturing a point where I realized I needed to mature as a as a designer. Mm-hmm. After thinking about you know specific products for design, I started to actually bring performance back into it and uh, start to make alternative stages, which at that point, things started to get a lot more interesting. And had, I mean, I was much more interested in and related to architecture in a way. So making alternative stages, um, say one of them was a huge round stage, like 20 feet in diameter, three feet wide, uh, 18 inches tall, like a big donut. We actually did a performance on it where the performers and the audience are all meant to sort of use it as a communal piece of furniture. It was kind of both the stage and the stadium, you know, kind of like a theater in the round, but even more integrated and less defined. And the idea being maybe a little bit more democratic because uh, thinking of these stages as sort of political diagrams almost, you know, you always have the stage and the audience and there's a very defined hierarchy. Even sometimes you have bouncers keeping you from getting to the stage. So uh, then after that, I also started making these really tall stools. So those are sort of uh, soap boxes you just bring out to the street or in a crowd and climb up on and bring your guitar up there and go for it. A way to grab attention and create a physical hierarchy, but also physical closeness, you know, proximity. People can be right up against the bottom of the stool if they want to. I found working with that, thinking about the room that the performance is going to happen in, had a huge effect on the way, say, a crowd behaves around these things. Then I expanded the, the tall stool to, say, a network of tall stools and instruments on top of them to kind of create a network structure. These ladders or stools or whatever they look like um, became sort of nodes in a network. That series got the Museum Purchase Award at the end of grad school. That got collected by Cranbrook Art Museum. Which, and then they commissioned a follow-up performance where I did a theatrical performance, theatrical musical performance on it. Again, spreading out within a crowd, but instead of just musical instruments on top of stools and ladders, it was a very you know, six-foot-tall couch um, where the front of it is kind of like a ladder. This sort of like 50s style diner set of table and chairs, also very tall. Well, so I graduated and then a year after did the theatrical performance. And in between that performance, I did a couple of commission tables for different clients, mostly connected to to Cranbrook. Oh, and I worked for uh, Matthew Barney for a month, I think, in his production of Coup assisting Jonathan Bepler on the music side of things. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so that, that was totally a uh, left field experience um, that I'll never forget. After that, I moved to California. My partner and I moved there, and she uh, uh, she had family there, and uh, we sort of had a connection with the studio, which is one of the reasons we moved. But I was taking a whole lot of odd jobs. For some reason, I, I had it in my head that I really didn't want to work for a large firm, whether it be design or architecture. Um, a large company of any kind? A large like. company of any kind, you know, okay. and again, was humbled in finding, working freelance for six bosses, it's much more difficult than working for one boss. <laughs> like managing all of those things when there were six different jobs, essentially. At one point, I was working for 
for an architect, sort of as a project architect in Echo Park. I was uh, installing artwork in Santa Monica while taking on furniture commissions, sculpture fabrication for shipping them back for the arts and residents, uh, doing CAD and line work for other artists. So did Um, you get worn out of doing that? Yes, I definitely burnt out a little bit and uh, started to try to consolidate. I then started working for a fire sprinkler designer, laying out fire sprinklers just as a part-time day job, which got me by while my partner and I started our home goods company, Lustred Walnuts. Originally, the idea was to do both uh, wood, furniture, and ceramics, sort of all home goods. We ended up focusing mostly on ceramics. Her master's was in ceramics. And so I I was on the design and mold making and positive for the molds. And then also helping fabrication, sales, accounting, shipping. Doing it all. (laughs) You know, everything. Yeah. The only thing we ever sort of needed to... uh, farm out because we realized that neither of our skills were up to task with photography. <laughs> so yes, wearing many, 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 many hats. Yeah. And so how long did you run that business? So we did that for about five years up until really just about a year ago. So we were both life partners and mm-hmm. uh, business partners. We had a son and a business and also both had part-time jobs and the, uh, the personal relationship ended up becoming a bit more of a friendship and mm-hmm. is now only a friendship, at which point we both kind of felt that the business was, our, our hearts started not to be quite in it as much. We both are hoping to continue making work on our own and are. With a four and a half year old, our focusing uh, <laughs> a little bit more stable than we were. I see, yeah. So is Lustered Walnut still a studio? Now that you guys have moved, you're well, onto something. Well, we still have a lot of the um, equipment and all the original molds and original patterns and things for making the molds. They're sort of in storage for, to maybe revisit in the future. Okay, so not totally dead yet. No, we didn't chuck it all in the dumpster. Okay. <laughs> We have a Lustered Walnut piece in our living room. Yes, we love it. Andrew and I, everyone's so talented that we went to school with. We'd love to have a piece from everyone. (laughs) So we have a piece from you. You've got one. Yes. Um, Wow. They were still around. Yes. Yeah. You know, we have like a couple of pieces in storage, but I'm I'm not, I don't know, maybe maybe we would have uh, enough to put out for like one or two more shows, but yeah. We use them sort of in our own kitchens and really enjoy them that way. Because, you know, we thought of everything sort of as a set and as a set to be experienced in its completeness, which, I don't know, maybe we never found that one client who wanted one of everything. So do you want to talk about your time now that you're in Denver, what you do in Denver? While all of that was super, super chaotic, I got a ton of really varied experience, both from an administrative side of running a business to the minutia of repairing machines or how to make all kinds of practical stuff and making things. So I started off as the woodshop assistant and now I'm the 
quote-unquote advanced manufacturing coordinator, which is a ridiculous title. I run the makerspace at uh, Arapahoe Community College. So we have a wood shop, two CNC mills, six uh, 3D printers, a laser cutter, sewing capability, sewing and surging, and an awesome. uh, electronic soldering station. So it's so, your perfect workshop. Yeah, so everything, you know, from my experience making amplifiers, doing actual soldering for simple circuitry, to my interest in woodworking to create my tall stools and furniture commissions after that, to helping make molds for the ceramic department, to being a laser cutter operator for artists and residents, all sort of collided for this to be like the perfect place where it's one job, but I can have my hands on all of those things. That sounds pretty fantastic. And actually, if I were to answer my own question about who was pivotal during my time at A&M, it would probably be one of the woodshop leaders. Do you remember Chuck? No. I was not in the woodshop nearly as much as I should have been at A&M, uh, but I definitely was in grad school. I was forced by proxy because I had my professor's senior year had us create our own syllabus out of, I think, sheer laziness. But we all did that. And I remember they just started promoting the ranch, the architectural ranch. It was this giant warehouse space where they had spent so much money acquiring every tool you could possibly want. And if they didn't have it, they would get it for you. But I uh, just wrote my curriculum all building things out there. So my last semester was basically spent out at the ranch building. And Chuck was the one who helped me like, I remember I needed to get a tool and he was like, sure, we'll get that, you know? And I was like, uh, I have this crazy idea, Chuck. Like, will you help me do X, Y, and Z? And he was like, well, I've never thought about that. And he would kind of scratch his head and then he'd go, but we'll make that happen, you know? And he would just help me figure out a way to get my crazy idea done. And I, I actually, now that I'm like, you mentioned what you're doing, I would have never thought of that time as influential. But it totally was, much more so than maybe any traditional studio or architecture professor was just the guy out teaching at the woodshop. You know, and being that guy, who he was to you, I had the privilege and joy of doing that at Cranbrook. I didn't lead the main shop. I was head of the 3D model shop just for my department. We had a very small like woodworking shop, which is well outfitted, but the main shop was more complete and I was an assistant over there and got to laser cut for people got to uh, show everybody how to use the machine and like you said my favorite thing to do is when somebody came in and had a crazy idea that they had no idea <laughs> what to do sit down with them and try to figure it out with them well, what was so fun about that is that like the chances to problem solve a project are like multiplied tenfold it's so much practice figuring out and designing and troubleshooting a project mm -hmm. where you actually don't have to make it. Tell them like, oh yeah, you should do this and this and this, or like, oh man, okay, let's figure this this part out, or yeah, like think about this part. Like it helped me as a designer and it was fun fun helping them. And I'm glad to hear that you had a similar experience. That the other side of it was as influential and useful. Well and you're a teacher now. So did you ever think about that when you were at AM or after AM? that you would go into that eventually? Or is that something that just kind of came through these various things? I didn't rule it out. I didn't feel like I had, you know, I didn't feel like I 
had any sort of real world experience to give legitimate advice to anybody <laughs> on anything. And I'm actually not faculty here. I'm an administrator of the space. And so I work with faculty, but I do work with students helping figure out projects, but I'm not say teaching a class. Would that be appealing to you? Not possibly. I have taught a little bit, but I really love the one-on-one troubleshooting of projects. However, I'm learning in that capacity that I need to uh, let people fail more often. Like let them go at it kind of as they would and then come back and try again. And and then when they have a problem with it, come to me and then I can explain to them why it failed so horribly. (laughs) It's a much better lesson uh, to learn because then getting it perfect. Because then I don't think you retain it as well. I don't think think the, the lesson sticks with you if it wasn't your mistake that you had to figure out. I have done every wrong woodworking thing in the book, fabrication mistake, you know, all sorts of things that uh, I figured out the hard way and therefore sort of remember them. Well, and it's kind of like I managed a coffee shop in college. I don't know if you remember Sweet Eugene's, but yeah, I did that for three years. I remember thinking I can do this job faster without explaining it to somebody. I'll just get it done. But I exhausted myself doing that rather than just teaching people the task at hand, having them fail at it or having them spend more time on it or whatever it may be, but that it was so much better in the end because then they could take that with them as a skill. And that's true management. That's like giving them the tools, the analogy of like giving people the knowledge to fish and they can feed themselves. But if you just catch the fish for them, they, you know. It's so much easier to catch the fish, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. In the long term, though, it, you get exhausted. So do you feel that you would maybe stick with this route? Or what do you see for your next 10 years, if, if you can even answer that? Well, so this space is uh, relatively brand new. They got a, a grant to create the space. and acquired a lot of the tools before I arrived. I didn't quite have the expertise to get it all up and running and create like a safety protocols, say like operating manuals and like somebody who could really figure all of it out or find the resources to figure all out. So mm-hmm. that's been my task is getting it running like a shop rather than we had a lot of the things we needed, missing some things we needed. So I've been filling in the gaps, figuring out the protocol and figuring out also like our student population their level of expertise that most of them are coming in with to figure out a starting point to explaining how to use this stuff, starting point for safety. You get some people who've like never touched a drill, working with a pretty wide range of experience level. Well, it looks like you've also started woodworking again from what I've seen on social media. Definitely been working on small projects. I have larger projects that I would like to get back to. Having a four-year-old, having a kid definitely um, changes your priorities and free time. Also have moved about once a year ever since graduating. So hoping not to move as often because that takes an amazing amount of time just setting up, resetting up, packing up. Well, and uh, figuring out the network in each city. You know, what's the art scene like? I remember Denver, one of the things I liked about that was it felt like such new ground. Like a lot of things were being done, a lot of new people moving there with good ideas and ideas that hadn't been explored yet. And the way I describe it, like when I moved to Seattle, you have a good idea and 10 people have already done it. 
in Denver, it felt like you had a good idea. It hadn't been done or that people were excited about it and it was something fresh. And so there was this great energy about Denver that I really loved. Well, I'm still exploring. I've been up to like Red Line, an artist residency, cool space, uh, seems well-funded. The artists and residents there uh, rotate, I guess, every two years or something. So are you trying for an artist in residency? Perhaps in the future. Right now, I'm focused on getting this space up and running the way I would like it to be running before delving too deeply into my personal work. Right now, I'm sort of I'm kind of treating this as my as my baby. Well, and do you feel like music will creep its way back in? I hope so at some point. Um, I uh, sort of half-heartedly have started a uh, cover band with a couple of friends. We practice here and there. Didn't do Karma Police yet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're, you can work up to it. Uh, but, you know, just for fun. I haven't written too much lately again. But keep up with it in other ways, you know. My last question. One of the pinnacles of architecture school is the all-nighter. And we kind of wear it as a badge of honor. So I've been asking everyone how many all-nighters they think they pulled while at a Oh, my God. If you had to put a number to it. Oh, I just remember it being like a like regular run-of-the-mill occurrence to the point where, you know, sometimes you would just do it just because, like, it felt normal. <laughs> it became your habit? Oh, oh, you're doing an all-nighter? I'm just going to, like, kind of hang out because, you know, you're on a ridiculous schedule. I am happy to say that I have not done an all-nighter in a very long time. If you wanted an actual number over the four years, yeah, I guess so. I'd say like 20 to 30, maybe. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, like in reality, it might be more like 20, but yeah, I, mean, I feel like a proper all-nighter was when you wake up for class on, say, Thursday morning, you have something to do on Friday morning, you just don't sleep Thursday at all, mm-hmm. you have classes all day Friday after your presentation in the morning so you don't get to go to sleep until regular time on Friday night. (laughs) (laughs) That makes it a proper all-nighter. That's that's a proper (laughs) all-nighter. There was a lot of like definitely lack of sleep and I just remember standing up trying to give a presentation and just your eyes are just so red and like you're just trying to keep them open and your your thoughts are all jumbled and you're trying to sound eloquent when you talk about something but you haven't had a chance to fully you know, get in that space before you start. Right. There's a lot of those that I wish I could have maybe spent 30 minutes practicing what I was going to talk about <laughs> rather than just get up there and right. 30, 30 minutes of the all that night. Well, besides time, the obvious like time management, um, also just recognizing what is important to uh, communicate in your design. I imagine like even if the craftsmanship wasn't perfect, if your design and the concept was just rock solid or mind blowing or whatever, that would have been so much more important. It would have been worth spending more time sitting at your desk and pondering than just jumping in and cutting cardboard. Right. Absolutely. I think it goes back to what you're saying too about editing. I, those hours spent weren't necessarily the best hours anyway. And you're usually not making the best decisions that go towards your common design goal or concept. That also kind of run, runs into design method. Some people like to explore as they make to come up with a concept. I tend to be the ponder it for months or years and then finally spit it out semi-fully formed. 
I find sometimes I do just need to sit down and finally just do it. No, that's kind of like this podcast. This was actually an idea I wrote in my journal. I keep a journal always about a year and a half ago. And it was going to be a book, actually. I was going to interview everybody and write. I wrote some questions then and those didn't make it to the final cut. But essentially, the idea was formed a year and a half ago. And I just now gave myself space and time to do it. Or it's like collecting. I don't know if you do this, but I collect random things. And I know that I don't have an idea of why I'm collecting something, but I know it's going to be an art installation later. I just haven't had, like, it's for me, it's the thing is the intriguing, the object is intriguing. And then I'm, I just wait until that perfect, how it comes together clicks in my head. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tangent, but this can officially conclude the interview unless there's anything else that you want to contribute. Is this one of the longer conversations that you've had? You and I? Yeah. Like, yeah. just like one-on-one at least. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I feel like we didn't we didn't talk as much as we should have. And also I think I was just so loud. <laughs> I was just way too loud. I needed to learn how to just shut up and listen. I still need to learn that. I do love the paintings you did. I don't know if you still paint. You would take like a strawberry and make a steak heart in the middle yeah. of it. I thought those were fantastic. I always wanted a little painting from you of something like that. I still have a couple of those. I was going to say, because uh, you asked other things that were inspiring me, Renzo Piano. Ooh. Are you a fan of Renzo Piano? Love Renzo Piano. As far as any architect, or really architectural studio, because uh, a lot of the buildings that I love, I found he wasn't necessarily the lead on, but the studio he's put together, just the way it looks at a context. You know, I'm not sure if he gets it every time in that respect or not, but I guess that's up to the people who actually live with his buildings afterwards. <laughs> the buildings of his that I personally experienced, like the Nail Collection mm-hmm. and the Nasher Sculpture Museum, mm-hmm. um, the Saitwambly, are just things designed down to the handles and the handrails. You know, I, I love the materials he uses. A lot of his buildings are designed like pieces of furniture down to every little tiny connection. I'd say if I were to practice architecture, that's sort of how I would like to practice it. They are works of art, but proper architecture. I've been very impressed with the work that I've seen of yours. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing more. I'm really excited. I wanted to create space to do other things. So architecture is a part of that, but if I wanted to do a podcast or write a book or explore some art installation, I I wanted to be able to do that. That just really enriches, you know, what you have to offer your clients, especially if you don't want to be doing run-of-the-mill architecture. If you're ever here, you got to come visit this school because for a two-year community college, the art department, which they have young blood and some great old experience as well that are combining to make a really vibrant art and design center here. I have a little bit of experience in just about all of the departments. So running the makerspace is just sort of like perfect because I can collaborate with most of the departments. You know, I'm not good at being an absolute expert at one thing. I love being pretty dang good at like a hundred little things. <laughs> yeah, because that's so much more interesting. Awesome. Thank you for uh, 
listening to me talk about myself for two yeah. hours. No, th- I thank you for participating <laughs> and doing this. I really hope that people get inspired by it because that's my biggest goal. And hearing journeys that like not necessarily everyone knew what they wanted to do and it maybe meandered, but that's life and not to be worried about that. You know, that's part of it. Well, I, I hope it comes out in the interview. I feel like you are interviewing me at the perfect time and like to have finally made it to this position where I feel like, you know, it's a full-time position, yeah. stable, doing what I love. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have won the lottery or something. It's been a long time coming. I'm so happy for you. It was a, a good move then. I can't wait to see where your your life takes you. Yeah, you too. I can't wait to see more projects. Yeah. All right. Well, it's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Soon. Yeah, sounds good. Robert has carved a nice place for himself at the Denver-based college makerspace combining many of his interests in one place and helping students with their own projects. Lester Walnut, his home goods business, is still making ceramic everyday objects. More recently, I've been following Robert's woodworking projects on Instagram. Maybe we'll see more custom furniture pieces in the future now that he's settled in Colorado for a while. At least I hope so. Join me next week for episode five, where I interview an architect from New York City who works for a large Starkitect firm and tells about his experience working globally. I'll also explain what Starkitect means so you'll want to stay tuned and see you next time on 10 Colleagues 10 Years. Thanks for listening.